listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 17. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in their field, in their yield. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your unpruned vine. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. You may eat what the land yields during its Sabbath. You, your male and female slaves, your hired and your bound laborers who live with you, for your livestock also and for the wild animals in your land, all its yield, shall be for food. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the tenth day of the seventh month on the Day of Atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land and you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property, and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth, or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. In this year of jubilee, you shall return every one of you to your property. When you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not cheat one another. When you buy from your neighbor, you shall pay only for the number of years since the jubilee. The seller shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. If the years are more, you shall increase the price. And if the years are fewer, you shall diminish the price. For it is a certain number of harvests that are being sold to you. You shall not cheat one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Thanks for that reading, Bobby. So, um, our series on Leviticus is drawing to a close. The Gospel According to Leviticus. I am way too proud still of that, that title. Um, we'll be in this book uh, just two more weeks, today and next, summer, uh, next Sunday. We've been in it all uh, summer. Uh, we'll be wrapping it up next week. And today we're talking about sacred economics. First question right off the bat. 
why are we talking about economics in church, right? Anyone else, anyone else kind of like wondering that? Like you saw that in your bulletin and it's like, what? This isn't like an Econ 101 class, right? This is, this is a worship space. This is sacred space. Stick with the spiritual, the religious, heavenly realities. The economy really has nothing to do with that. If you've been around church long enough, uh, you've probably heard the statistic thrown around that money is one of the most frequently addressed topics in the Bible. Uh, That statistic, by the way, is usually cited by pastors in sermons about tithing, which seems a bit self-serving, I think. Um, It is true, though. Uh, It's it's an accurate statistic. The Bible does talk about money uh, more than most other things, more than sex, more than holiness, more than prayer. Um, Scripture addresses money economics more than just about any other topic out there. And Christians are instructed to support the church financially. That's a real thing. But we are not going to talk about tithing today. Because when money comes up in the Bible, it's usually not in the context of tithing. In fact, when money comes up in Scripture, the context is usually economic justice. How money is used, how wealth is distributed, how the economy works and who it works for. The Bible is very concerned with ensuring that God's people uphold economic justice in society. We've seen this already in the book of Leviticus, right? Like we've come across this a few times. This uh, ancient manual for priests has an awful lot of laws about money and how it gets used. Uh, Make sure that laborers are fairly paid. Don't steal. Don't defraud people. Use honest weights and measures. Care for the poor and the foreigner. In the first uh, seven chapters of this book, uh, when we get all those details about the sacrificial system of ancient Israel, all the different sacrifices, how to do them, which animals to offer, do you guys remember all of that? That was like months ago that we covered that. When we get that system, that structure of sacrifices, there is a scale of animals based on what people could afford. Uh, If you're rich, like the high priest or part of the nobility, you bring a bull to sacrifice. If you're an average person, you bring a goat or a lamb. And then if you're poor, you can sacrifice a dove or a pigeon, a bird. It's a scale based on what people could afford. So from its opening pages, the book of Leviticus, the religious system of ancient Israel, is concerned with making sure that everyone gets to participate. Everyone gets a seat at the table regardless of their economic status. Now I know when we talk about economics, or oh gosh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong all day. Uh, When we talk about the economy, economics, money, um, things get a little antsy, right? Like, it's taboo in our society to talk about money in church. And especially when it comes to, like, economic systems, we all tend to retreat into our own little teams, right? It's either, like, um, boo capitalism, or boo socialism, or boo all of it. But what I want to do today, if we can, as much as is possible, is I want to set all of that aside for a few minutes. And I want to look at what the Bible actually has to say on this topic. 
Because the book of Leviticus spells out the economic system of ancient Israel. It gives us the details of the economic model that God designed for God's people. So as a part of God's people, we should probably take note of that. And here's the good news uh, for those of us who are on team capitalism. The good news is that the economic system described in Leviticus is not socialism. The bad news, though, is that it is way more radical. So let's get into this. Uh, This is going to be fun. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 1. Um, I'll reread part of this for us. It should be on the screen, too. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land. Now, last week we talked about Sabbath, right? It's this uh, concept that, like, you work six days and then you rest one day. This rhythm of, like, six and one. Six days you do all your work, one day you rest. Leviticus 25 starts out by declaring that the land also gets a Sabbath. The land also gets a rest. The Israelites are allowed to work the land, plow, sow, harvest, all of that, for six years, but then on the seventh year, the land lies fallow. Now, the way this would work is for six years, when everyone's like growing and harvesting and all that, you would set aside extra crops every year to kind of be your holdover so that during that seventh year, you could live off of those crops you saved, all that food, and anything the land produced naturally so that the land could rest for that seventh year. Right away, there are some pretty big economic implications of a system like that, right? Like, for one, this is an agrarian society we're talking about. So, like, most people are farmers. If the land rests for a year, that means that farmers get to last, uh, get to rest for a year, right? Like, I imagine there'd be some work to do, right? Um, Caring for livestock, maintaining the land. I have never really done much farming, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But, like, imagine if, for a year, half the economy just shut down. We're not going to worry about profits this year. We're not going to worry about producing. We're just going to trust God to provide and give our employees and the land some time to rest. We would call that a recession, right? Like, that would be a big deal. No profits for a year, no growth. That's, that's like heresy today. If that sounds kind of radical, uh, check out this next part about the year of Jubilee. Verse 8. <clears throat> you shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Math. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the tenth day of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. Now, what is this about? 
the year of Jubilee. Every seven years, the land rests. Then you do that seven times, so 49 years. The 50th year is the year of Jubilee, when the trumpets are sounded and liberty is proclaimed throughout the land. The year of Jubilee was easily the most radical part of Israel's economic system because in the year of Jubilee, everyone gets their family lands back. Now, that doesn't mean much to a lot of us. Like, we don't really do family lands so much anymore. Um, I don't even know who built my house. Uh, my family lives in Pennsylvania. So, like, we don't, we don't, we have this disconnect. But in a society of farmers, like ancient Israel, family lands were everything. The land that you work, the land that sustains you, that provides for you and your family, it's the same land your father worked and that his father worked on and on through the generations. Your family land was everything. If you had a couple seasons of bad crops, or say you had to borrow like a large sum of money, maybe you made some bad financial decisions or fell on bad luck, your family land was your collateral. It was your one way out of it. Your land was your wealth. You could pay off your debt by putting up or selling off some of your family lands. Of course, you sell some land, that leaves you with less space to grow crops. What happens if you hit another bad year or another bad year? You borrow some more, you sell off some more land. It's this never-ending cycle of debt that could land you with nothing. If you sold all your land and you had nowhere to farm, you could maybe take up a trade. Um, if you were lucky, you might have some other family nearby and you could move in with them and help uh, work their land. But if you got in bad enough straits, if you had too much debt and you didn't have any land left to sell, your only option was indentured servitude, economic slavery. You'd go to some rich person, you'd offer yourself as a slave, and then you would work their land for the rest of your life, and they would keep the profits. And God forbid if you got to the point where you couldn't work the land anymore, if you weren't any good as an indentured servant, then if you were in enough debt, your only option was debtor's prison. They'd lock you up, leaving your family to fend for themselves, and you would have to work off your debt in prison. This is how wealth and debt operated in ancient agrarian societies. This was not unique to Israel. This was like most of the world. In a system like that, <clears throat> Jubilee is a radical idea. It's all spelled out in the rest of this chapter, but every 50 years, everyone gets their family land back. Think about that. If you fell into debt and you put your land up as collateral, in the year of Jubilee, your debt was canceled. If you lost your land, if you had to sell off some of your land to pay for a loan, in the year of Jubilee, you got your land back. The buyers had to return the land to you. And if you became a slave, or if you were in debtor's prison, in the year of Jubilee, you go free. Debts are canceled, slaves are freed, debtors are released from prison, and anyone who lost their land, lost their property, gets their land back. 
Jubilee was basically a fresh start. It was like uh, an economic reset built into Israel's economy once in a lifetime. I heard the story this past week um, of a woman around my age, I think she lived locally, she was raised in a cycle of poverty. Parents were always struggling, always in debt, living paycheck to paycheck. And like most millennials, uh, like most people my age, this woman was told that college was the key to everything. Go to college, get that degree, get that piece of paper, and you'll have it made. So she graduated high school, got into college, one of the first people from her family to go to college, her, fam- her parents were so proud, private school. She did great, went on to get a master's degree, graduated from that, and went into the workforce just in time for the Great Recession. No jobs. Unemployed, with $230,000 in school debt, she got married and started a family. And her first child ended up with special needs. She couldn't go back to work now. Even when the economy picked back up, she had to stay home and take care of her family, take care of her kids. Fast forward to today, this family is still in poverty, living paycheck to paycheck with almost a quarter million dollars in student loan debt. For a family like that, the year of Jubilee would be revolutionary would change everything. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about the ramifications of Jubilee. What should it mean for us that this radical economic idea is sitting right there in our Bibles? Um, And when we do this, I want to start big picture, like, like big picture scale, and then work our way smaller, because it's way too easy to just spiritualize all of this away. It's too easy to be like, well, that would never work. Good thing we don't have to listen to the old text anymore. Um, I guess just be nice to people and tithe to your church. I don't want to do that. I want to take this seriously if we take this book seriously. So let's start big picture, work our way down. What does this mean for us and for our economy today? Obviously, times have changed since the days of Leviticus, right? Our economy, the modern economy, looks pretty different from an ancient agrarian society. Uh, Most of us aren't farmers anymore. Uh, Our wealth isn't quite as tied up with our land, although if you have a mortgage, you feel a lot of that. Um, But a lot of these other economic realities that are addressed in this chapter are still present today in some form. There are still farmers losing their family lands. That's still a thing. Today, it's usually to factory farming, but we still see that all the time. There are still people living under mountains of debt, whether we're talking about credit cards, student loans, mortgages, payday loan companies. Do you guys know about payday loan companies? It's it's pretty awful. Um, These are businesses that set up shop in poor neighborhoods, especially inner city and rural communities, They give out short-term loans with massive interest, usually to people who do not have the money to pay it back, and they basically target the poorest of the poor for profit. I found some statistics on uh, wealth and debt in America, and they're pretty staggering. 
Um, the average American household has over $50,000 in debt, and that's actually down. That's on the lower end right now. We're actually looking much better uh, debt-wise, in part because of all the stimulus checks, but that's actually on the lower end. Meanwhile, the wealthiest 1% in our country owns nearly 40% of our nation's wealth, $41.5 trillion, which is 10 times more wealth than the bottom half of the country. And these disparities get even worse when you break them down by race, age, and where you live. People of color, much more likely to uh, have less wealth than white people. Um, older folks and children, much more likely to live in poverty. Rural folks, much more likely to live in poverty. In a jubilee system, statistics like these become impossible. Think about this for a minute. <clears throat> the economic system of ancient Israel worked to prevent two things. The accumulation of wealth and the accumulation of debt. That's what the jubilee system is about. Um, if every 50 years all debts are forgiven and any land you've amassed, any new wealth you've taken on goes back to the original owners, no one can incur too much debt and no one can incur too much wealth. The economy would have to function very differently. Today, we live in a system that depends on these two things, right? Like, you can't do anything without wealth and or debt. Try to start a business, buy a house, get an education. You need one of those two things, probably a good deal of both. And those are the two things the economic system of Leviticus is designed to prevent. Now, here's the thing. We are not going to throw out our economic system and, like, run things based on Leviticus, right? That's, that probably wouldn't work. Um, the society is too different. And we don't live in a theocracy, which I think is a good thing. Um, but here's where I really struggle with this. A lot of our fellow Christians don't mind speaking out on certain things. Um, stuff like abortion, sex. My gosh, we are obsessed with sex. I, I have heard so many Christians quote Leviticus 18, all the sex stuff we talked about a few weeks ago. I've heard so many Christians quote that in a condemning way against their LGBTQ neighbors, for example. But I have never once heard a Christian cite Leviticus 25 to a banker. There's an inconsistency there, right? Um, we have opinions on these things. We have opinions on finance, economics, money. Those opinions just aren't usually shaped much by the Bible. And I think that's a problem. So let's bring this closer to home. Let's come down a level uh, on a more, like, smaller, local, communal level. There are so many decisions that you and I make every day that have very real economic consequences, consequences for people in our world and in our communities. Where we shop, the businesses we support, how we invest our money, how we consume, how much we consume. If you want to put Jubilee in practice uh, in your life, that could look like shopping at, like, local bookstores and at farmer's markets instead of online or from, like, big box chains. 
It could look like reviewing your investment portfolio to see how the companies you've invested in use their profits. If you want to put this in practice and you're a small business owner, um, it probably looks like paying your employees well and treating them fairly. This could look like getting involved in leadership in the community, local politics, running for office, advocating for farmers, laborers, migrant workers. Or at a minimum, as Christians, when we step in a voting booth, we should know where the leaders we're voting for stand on these kind of things. We will probably never live under the economic system of Leviticus. But when Christians take these teachings seriously and actually put them to practice in our lives, it can be no less revolutionary. Um, back in July, there was this church down in New Mexico that was all over the news. And I know when churches make the news, it's not always a good thing, um, but this one was. This one was pretty positive. Uh, St. Bede's Episcopal Church in Santa Fe, New Mexico paid off $1.4 million of medical debt in July for families across their state. These weren't church members. These were just families in the community and across the state of New Mexico. 782 households had their medical debt wiped clean by this one church. And you're probably thinking like $1.4 million, that must be a huge church. That's just a wild amount of money. No, the way they did it was they set up a collection agency. Uh, when people can't pay their hospital bills, the hospital will go after some of that, but eventually that gets too expensive. So hospitals sell off their debt to these collection agencies, often for pennies on the dollar. You can buy for like 10,000, 20,000 bucks, you can get up to a million dollars in medical debt if you're a collection agency. So this church set, it, set up their own collection agency. They raised $15,000. And with $15,000, they were able to purchase $1.4 million in medical debt, and then they just forgave it, canceled it, with no strings attached. That's what Jubilee looks like. What could a small church like ours do with this kind of mindset? We could raise 15 grand. Heck, I'd give like 500. <laughs> what could each of us, getting even like smaller level now, each of us on an individual level do if we lived Jubilee every day? Think about all the stuff that you've accumulated. It could be anything. I know I've got like 50 t-shirts, I only ever wear like 12 of them. <laughs> but it could be anything. What would it look like to unload some of what you've accumulated to bless someone else. Is there anyone who owes you a debt? Maybe it's financial, maybe it's relational, communal. What would it look like to cancel that debt, to set that person free? Whether we're talking nationally, locally, communally, as a church, or in our individual lives, for Jubilee to have power, we have to put this stuff into practice. From the debts that are owed to us, to the businesses we support, to what we do with our money as a church, right down to how we invest and how we vote.
You all have tremendous power to shape and steward our society. Steward it well. Let's pray. God, when Jesus preached his very first sermon, he declared the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Christ declared that he had come to cancel debts, heal the blind, and set the captives free. So God, as we continue on this journey of discipleship, both as a church and in our own lives, striving to be more like Christ, help us to be a jubilee people. Help us to steward the wealth we've accumulated and to forgive the debts of others just as we have been forgiven. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.